Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Every one of my events, there was food left over. And for years and years, that was just the way it was. We'd throw it away at the end of an event. But I had one particular event where there was just so much waste that it became unconscionable. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Well, hello and happy new year. Welcome to our first episode for 2021. You know, it's crazy how time flies, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's mid-January already and Don't Stop Us Now will be turning three years old at the end of May this year. Three already. Wow, we're almost out of toddler stage then. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, we really hope that you've had a chance to rest and rejuvenate and stay healthy over the holiday season, wherever you may be. Absolutely. And as you return to work, or plan the next steps in your career, we couldn't think of a better guest to start the year with than social entrepreneur Ronnie Khan. That's for sure. Ronnie is a South African who's lived in Australia for many years. The story of how she founded and then grew her social enterprise called Oz Harvest is really quite something. And you'll hear all about that today. Yes, you will. And in essence, for those of you not familiar with Oz Harvest, it's Australia's leading food rescue organisation. And it ensures that quality untouched food from supermarkets and also big events like conferences get delivered to provide meals for those in need rather than being thrown away. It's such a brilliant win-win model, isn't it? You know, yeah. Firstly, it stops food from being wasted and going to landfill. And then secondly, of course, it goes to people who need it. And in fact, it's delivered 160 million meals in Australia today. Absolutely amazing. Plus, it's expanded overseas as well. And indeed, Ronnie recently released her fantastic memoir called A Repurposed Life. And we talked to her about how to find your purpose in this episode. Indeed we do. And we'll also cover in this episode how Ronnie's early life from growing up in South Africa to living on a kibbutz in Israel helped shape her ultimate purpose to end food waste. We'll also explore how her earlier entrepreneurial endeavors with florist shops, pyramid selling, skincare, and a flourishing events business helped her build her self-confidence and enabled her to think bigger. How Oz Harvest has had to pivot and adapt through COVID, 
And we'll listen and hear why she advises you not to wait to give more than you get. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the focused and impressive Ronnie Khan. Ronnie, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you so very much for inviting me and having me on. Well, we're so excited to have you on. You've got such amazing stories in your life and with Oz Harvest. We just can't wait to get stuck in today and hear more from you yourself. Now, a question we like to ask all of our guests at the beginning is, Ronnie, if you met someone at a dinner party and they didn't know anything about you, which in Australia is probably quite hard these days, how would you briefly summarize what you do today? Well, I'd say I'm blessed. If this was at a dinner party, I'd say I'm blessed. And they'd say, why? And I'd say, because I run an organization. I founded an organization called Oz Harvest, whose key purpose is to make sure that good food does not go to waste, but goes to feed vulnerable people instead, as well as making sure that we educate all of us around not wasting food, valuing food, so that we can live on a better planet because food waste has been deemed the third biggest reason for climate change. Wow, I did not know that. That's fascinating. And the work you've done is incredible. And I'm sure you must get some pretty interesting reactions to those few people who don't already know what you do when you do say that at dinner parties. Well, the beautiful thing is, in fact, I don't have to teach anybody about not wasting food. Our mothers, our grandmothers, our extended elder family members have taught us. So the reaction I do get is, wow, that's amazing. That is brilliant. We love that. Yes, so do we. And we're going to dive in more. But before we do, if we go all the way back to your childhood, you grew up in South Africa. How would you just briefly describe what that experience was like? Well, growing up in South Africa during the apartheid era was challenging. It was challenging and frightening as to how easy it is to live under a situation where people are mandatorily deemed unequal. So growing up in apartheid South Africa, where our country mandated that anyone with a different color skin than white was to be discriminated against. And I was very fortunate because my parents subliminally taught us values But growing up until I was 16, we were very aware of color, very aware that we were privileged because we were white through sheer luck, actually. You said it was frightening. By that, do you mean it's frightening what we as humans can get used to um, and live with in terms of sort of that inequality and that sort of systematic discrimination? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean, because whilst I knew and we were brought up to know that that wasn't acceptable and that it didn't align with our values, when you live in a country that has mandated that, that is the reality. And if you know that you're going to go to jail for doing anything different, it is prohibitive. And obviously, to many people, it became prohibitive. Yes, there were always activists and freedom fighters and people who fought the system, but many of them landed up in jail and many of them landed up serving life sentences for that. A high price to pay for sure, yeah. How did you imagine your life would be when you were an adult, when you were young and in South Africa? Well, I knew I'd leave South Africa 
I think because I am Jewish, I was part of a Jewish youth movement. And part of that education was potentially to go and live in the Jewish homeland, which is Israel. And my older sisters had visited Israel and been planning to go there. So I knew I would probably leave the country. But I certainly thought that I would probably get a job, I'd get married, have children and have a profession. And there were a few professions that had interested me at the time when I was little. You know, I was going to be an air hosty because that seemed incredibly glamorous. It take into account when I was young, airplanes and flights were a big deal, a real luxury. I mean, I didn't get on an airplane until I left South Africa at 17. So that seemed like a glamorous profession. Yeah, totally. And so you did get yourself to Israel. And whilst you were at uni, you actually moved into a kibbutz, I believe, with your then boyfriend and and later husband. And you ended up being there for actually quite a number of years. How would you summarise that time? It was an extraordinary period. Living and breathing socialism, living and breathing equality was on one level extraordinary. It was so far from what I had lived in my previous life in South Africa that it was quite glorious. On the other, it came with demands and it came with living in a society that had a different set of rules. Some of them were challenging, some of them were wonderful but certainly incredibly educational. The foundation of some very, very deep friendships. Yeah, I can imagine. So after you left the kibbutz, you then really showed, I guess, the, perhaps the beginning of your entrepreneurial bent when you ran florist shops. And then I think you went into event management. How did that happen? Well, when I left kibbutz, I did go into a florist with my sister having never run a business before and seemed to be pretty good at it and enjoyed it and loved it. And if you're working with flowers, the ancillary events around flowers are things like celebrations of various different kinds or moments, really unique moments in the life of an individual is when we share flowers. So more and more people would come in and say, okay, I'm getting married or I'm having a party or I'm doing this. What can you do? So it became a situation that, again, it was a business opportunity, but also a very creative opportunity to say, well, I can do this, this and this. If you're getting married, we can make your wedding like this. If you're having a party, we can style and match your house to the flowers we bring in. So I guess for me, it was an extension of my creativity. Yeah, and it sort of sounds like that's been a real theme in your life. That was obviously in Israel. And then you and your husband decided to move your young family to Australia, which, you know, is a very long way from Israel and and from South Africa. What made you do that? Well, there were a number of reasons driving a decision to leave Israel. One of them being that I had two sons. And in Israel, there's compulsory military conscription. And I decided that 
I wanted my boys to have a choice as to whether they went to the army and not make it a choice of mine through where I've chosen to live that they have to go. Um, that was number one. Number two, politically things in Israel were heating up and I didn't always agree with the politics and felt again to make a choice. And why Australia? Well, I had a sister who had gone to live subsequently in Los Angeles, America. And there's my husband had a brother that had gone to live in Australia. Thinking about where would I want to bring up children? We decided Australia sounded more similar to what the kinds of lives we'd been brought up with than America did. And so we chose Australia. I guess that's right. If you take apartheid out of the the picture, the sort of the lifestyle, the climate between South Africa and Australia are quite similar. Nonetheless, that kind of Aussie, laid back, pretty homogenous culture back in the, the late 80s must have been a bit of a culture shock. You know, what was the hardest thing settling into yet another new country? Oh, look, there's no doubt that the lack of cosmopolitanism was a challenge when we lived in, after we'd left kibbutz, we had gone to live in Haifa, a city in the north of Israel, where at two in the morning you could go out and get coffee and party and have an exotic life. And we came to Australia to Lindfield in New South Wales, which was suburbia and <laughs> businesses closed at five. <laughs> And didn't open on Sundays. Exactly. So <laughs> it was pretty tame. But in a way, tame was felt like a good alternative to the wars we'd been through and the losses we'd grieved. And it just felt like a new start. And honestly, like almost like the promised land because the land of opportunity for doing whatever it is you are willing to do if you put your head down and your bum up. Yeah. So when you are here in Australia, you've got two school-age boys. If I'm not mistaken, I think you started out with running florist shops again and then fell into pyramid-selling skincare for some years. What were the biggest lessons you learned from that experience? Oh, it was an extraordinary experience. I learned that you can be the most inspirational person, but people might not necessarily do. They might follow you, but it's the actions that count when people follow you. Right. But I also learned self-confidence. I learned the ability to believe in something bigger than myself, whereas growing up, scarcity and just living within one's means was very much the way my family lived. This gave one an opportunity to dream. You could dream that you could be as big or as rich or as effective as you wanted to be, which was a great timing for me to learn those lessons. And so I think from my point of view, it absolutely empowered me in a way that I'd never been empowered before. That's fantastic. Can you remember 
what it was or what actions they got you to do that really helped you build your confidence? Because it can be such a common issue and challenge for a lot of people. The reason I went into this was because I loved the product. And I figured if I loved the product, other people would like the product. So I think that integrity was what allowed me very passionately to talk about skincare. Now, it might sound like it is a very superficial thing, and it is, but we all use it. And yes, there's that whole notion of hope in a jar. But if you believe that you're selling something good, then it's certainly easier. Well, I couldn't sell something that I didn't believe in. Absolutely. And I guess what I'm hearing from that is that because you had such belief in the product, that empowered you to have, if you like, the courage and the confidence to stand up or approach people and talk to them about this product where in previous circumstances you might not have been able to. Is that a fair sort of summary? Absolutely. Now, I know from your book that was released last year, A Repurposed Life, that you then went and started an events business again in Australia and it grew to significant scale and you were doing incredible events. But also what was the trigger moment where you thought about starting an organization like Oz Harvest? Because I think that came from all the events you were running. Yeah, there's no doubt that Oz Harvest is the creation of fulfilling a need that I had in my event business. So every one of my events, there was food left over. And for years and years, that was just the way it was. We'd throw it away at the end of an event. But I had one particular event where there was just so much waste that it became unconscionable. And so I started a rogue food rescue. And what do you mean by that? What happened? Well, what I mean by that is that I would take food that I had prepared and deliver it to one or two charitable organizations that I knew. It was my pre-Oz Harvest life. It was before I decided to actually mobilize my skills, strengths into starting another organization. It was just me finding a solution for a problem that I had. And therein lies often a solution to how we find purpose because people often when faced with a problem say, why doesn't somebody fix it? In my case, I fixed the problem that I had. Other people potentially could fix a problem that many people had and thereby find a solution to something that was very effective. And I must say, um, reading that part of your book, it really created a vivid picture of you driving around at ungodly hours in the middle of the night because, of course, events finish late yes. and then the pack up. And so there you are at, for memory, sort of 3 a.m., knocking on doors of shelters with food. Yep. A crazy sort of lifestyle that must have been in terms of just the hours, let alone. But incredibly exciting and exhilarating. Yeah. You know, that food that I'd thrown away, I now could give away. Well, I chose to give away. I didn't know that I could. I chose to give it away. And that's until in the life before starting officially Oz Harvest. And you talked about finding your purpose then. Probably it makes sense to ask now, you know, your book's called A Repurpose Life. And I know a lot of people ask you, how do I find my purpose? How would you briefly summarize what the main piece of advice that you give to people is? Well, I'd say every single one of us has a purpose. Sometimes we don't know it, but 
we wake up in the morning, we feed our children, we need to make money or we need to go to our work. All sorts of those things are some form of purpose. The purpose that now everyone bandies about seems people wish that they could walk into a supermarket and buy. But that's not where we find purpose. We find purpose by looking in the mirror. We find purpose by thinking about who it is we want to be, about the child we were and what brought us joy. And I believe we find purpose by thinking about doing something that in some way will be useful, meaningful, and certainly not harmful to anybody else. Well, you certainly found a way to be useful and meaningful to others. What was the moment where you decided, okay, I'm going to now start up this organization, which is now called Oz Harvest, and give it a really good go? Well, I think it was blind naivety and no fear that it could fail because I knew that there was food and I knew that there were people in need and it just seemed, well, putting those two together was a good idea. And clearly 160 million meals later, it hasn't been such a bad idea. Incredible. Yeah, but practically it must have been very hard to do. Yeah, well, it was. It was all about the logistics. It was all about making sure that I and my kids at the time could be where we needed to be when we needed to be until I reached this understanding suddenly that there was more food than just I was creating. Initially, I just thought, oh, I've got this problem. Then I thought, well, other event producers would have this problem. But then it became very apparent that then we didn't know then that a third of all food was going to waste. But what I did know was that good food was going to waste and was going to landfill rather than feeding people. So it didn't make sense. It was very abhorrent to think of all the food I'd wasted and to think about how we could do things differently. Absolutely. You know, let's fast forward to today because I think that was back in, what was that, 2004? Yeah. 2004, now we're in 2021. Can you tell us a bit about the extent of the reach of Oz Harvest now? Yeah, the most exciting thing is I never set it up to be the biggest food rescue organization, nor did I set it up to become a global organization. But what we did do and what I did do was create a movement and an organization that had a very duplicable model. So today we're across Australia, we're in the UK, we're in New Zealand, and we're in South Africa. But there are people who are embedding our model or have used our model or have copied our model in multiple countries around the world. Right now, we're working with Japan, Zimbabwe, South America to help them find a model that will work for them. Wow, that's absolutely amazing. It really is. What, what an impact you had on so many people's lives. It's incredible. Yeah, it is significant. And, you know, it really is quite a feat to get to where you are. It must have been quite an interesting leadership journey for you because you've had to really move from being a small scale business to really ramping up and having a big team and having a bigger scope. What 
been some of your biggest lessons about leading people in an organization? Well, you can't be a leader if you don't have a team. And so the biggest learning is bringing on other people and empowering them because one person cannot do it alone. One person can be the visionary, can be the instigator, can be the inspiration. And I'm not saying I'm all of those, but I'm saying one person leads and has the vision, but to action and to deliver, you need many more. And I think it's the notion, first of all, of never asking anyone to do what I wouldn't do. And it's the notion of being as true to myself as I can be so that I bring my whole self to work. And that's what I expect. And that's what I encourage for all of the people who work with me and with us. And what's been the hardest lesson for you in leadership? I guess the hardest lesson is one really trusting your instinct against all odds. <laughs> well, making those major decisions sometimes are tough and making a call that sometimes might not be the most popular is always a challenge. But I think really being an example to others is the thing that keeps me on my toes because I'm always thinking, if somebody questioned me about this, how could I justify it? Is it the right thing? And that's, I think, a hugely important part of questioning in leadership, doing the right thing for the right reasons. Yeah, no, I think that's very important. I'm really interested, though, about, you know, making decisions, these really hard decisions is very difficult. And trusting your intuition is also, your intuition can feel a bit nebulous. Do you have any things that you do to help yourself really work through what your intuition is truly saying to you? I think I'm going to answer that a little differently. I think the driver for me, for everything that we do, every decision I make, is will it impact positively on the people I serve and the planet? So there's huge clarity around that. And so those are the most important forces that inform a decision I make. But absolutely, I practice yoga, I practice mindfulness, meditation. I have a guru, a spiritual teacher I follow. And all of those things enrich my life and allow me the space to, I would hope, be the best I can be. Yeah, it sounds like you're very, you're very conscious I'd love to hear more about your guru. And if I'm not mistaken, having the advantage, I think he's in India. But can you just briefly tell us a little bit about the impact that he has? Sure, yes. My teacher is in India. He's a very wise but simple human being whose message is go out and make a difference. Go out and do good for others. Kind of a very simple profound message because if that's what you follow and you do you're bound to have a very enriched life because the more you give the more you get and until you start giving and it, it's both money it's time it's energy it's knowledge the more you give the more you get and so it's actually not that much more complicated what's complicated is actually surrendering to that 
and accepting that that is the mantra by which you live because we tend to overcomplicate life and look for much bigger a bigger message i think surrendering seems like a great word because the trappings of modern day society make it sometimes very difficult to trust and i think it comes back to your thoughts about you know being raised in a a view of scarcity or or having a view of abundance and it's very easy to think no no how am i going to get by and pay the rent in this day and age if i just think about how can i serve and give well the fascinating thing is i fully mean when the more you give the more you get and sometimes it isn't obviously monetary but it enables and empowers in a way that there are other ways to get what one needs and to actually make money out of different things when you're doing good so i think instead of making decisions that are one day i will do something we actually don't have one day we all think we do but we don't all we have is right this minute that i know for sure I know too many people who weren't planning to lose their lives that day but did. I know too many people whose lives shifted and changed in an instant that was not in their direct control. And so we can plot and plan all we like for the future we plan. Nobody says we shouldn't do that, but it's actually what you do now that counts. So powerful. Now you talked about sort of the tragedy of losing lives and of course 2020 brought with it covid-19. Yeah. How did that impact Oz Harvest and how is it continuing to impact Oz Harvest? It impacted us significantly. One there was a shortage of food and there was a shortage of money and so we had to both find food and find money. So we lobbied and got government funding. and we ran an extraordinary campaign that individuals participated in and we raised a beautiful amount of money to last to deliver more food but for the first time ever we had to purchase food but we pivoted we redeployed we were agile we were nimble and we've rolled out so many new programs only to fulfill the need again it's all about the impact so not only did we run BAU but we also amplified and rolled out about 10 new programs which have had an extraordinary effect that's incredible and uh, i guess who knows at this early stage what 2021 holds in store but it seems like there's still some legs in covid until vaccine is really fully here so i guess that means a lot of those new programs will continue absolutely they will need to be continued Yeah, absolutely. And Ronnie, I'm sure you would have started writing your book before pre-COVID. But what actually prompted you to write a memoir? So the memoir came about because for the last 15 years people have asked me, when will you write a book? And I had no intention of writing it. But two and a half years ago, it just felt like a really good time. I felt I had something to say. I've been I mentor people, they come to me, they ask me and i thought wow if i can have an effect on individuals when i meet them maybe we could do something i could do something that had a broader effect if it was positive and so really it started from there 
And what's been so extraordinary is that the book actually was finished just before COVID hit. But I don't believe there's been a more timely book because through this whole period of COVID in 2020 going into, as we all are, 2021, we've spent so much time thinking. We've had so much time to evaluate our lives. And people are looking for different answers and have found themselves in a very new place. And somehow my book addresses that only because I'd been there. As I say, I knew nothing about COVID when we wrote it. And I say we because I did write the book with my daughter-in-law, Jessica Chapnick-Khan, which was an extraordinary experience. But the book seems to be extraordinarily timely. And that's the feedback I'm getting from the book. Yeah, it certainly does. And I love the fact it all comes back to impact again. You know, and there's so many wonderful stories in that book. I feel we've barely scratched the surface. So I really do encourage listeners to uh, grab a copy because, you know, full credit to you and your daughter-in-law, Jessica, because it's really beautifully written and it's a great book. Yeah, absolutely. Ronnie, just before we wrap up, one question that we like to ask all of our guests is if you could go back in time, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? Trust. Trust in who you are. Trust that you will make the right decisions and don't regret anything that you've done or that you do because each and every step is a learning that will hold you in good stead for your future. Such wise advice. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you, Ronnie. We absolutely love what you do. Now, if our listeners wanted to learn more about Oz Harvest and importantly, would like to read the book, where should they go to find out more? Thank you. So the book is available from all retail outlets. It's on Booktopia. It's on Amazon. So it can be downloaded. It's on Audible as well. You can hear the book if you don't want to read it. Absolutely wonderful. And if they want to find out more about Oz Harvest, they just have to go onto our website because all the questions are answered there. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you so very much. Bye. It's so impressive what Ronnie's achieved with Oz Harvest, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I hadn't thought of the impact of COVID on their operations. Yeah. You know, no events and conferences means no quality food left over. Yeah. Plus, everyone eating at home means much less unused food stock in supermarkets. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible that they've had to pivot and actually buy food for the first time this year. Yeah, incredible. Well, last year too. And, you know, I love how Ronnie's encouraging us all to give. It's a great message to start the year. And a reminder, you can learn more about Ronnie's journey in her book, A Repurposed Life. Indeed you can. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. We'll be back next week with one of our mini episodes and can't wait to chat then. Indeed. Ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.